1: Hi everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today on China Corner Office, a podcast powered by SubChina, the New York-based news and information platform that helps the West read China between the lines. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor at Cambridge University Judge Business School. and today's episode features a discussion with Juliana Einger, the Asia Head of Sustainability for French multinational Schneider Electric. Juliana is currently based in Hong Kong and has spent over 20 years living and working in mainland China. Juliana's work, which is focused on helping companies become more environmentally sustainable and decarbonize, is certainly a very important issue nowadays as countries around the world are increasingly addressing these issues and associated global warming. She discusses many different strategies and tactics that companies in particular can implement to overcome the challenges of decarbonization. In addition to using renewable energy and increasing efficiency, a significant piece of work is the fine-grained data collection and analysis needed to help companies better understand their energy usage. This includes things like IoT tags to accurately measure which systems are more or less efficiently processing, and further, the important human processes that are essential to creating greater energy efficiency. One area of discussion is China's carbon commitments and progress, given the country's pledge to reach peak carbon in 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2060. While the media frequently reports on data that conflicts with these objectives, such as continued prevalence of cold-fired power plant construction, one of the things I really appreciated about Juliana's discussion It's the detail she provides on many of the positive developments in this area, such as the clear focus of the government, China's carbon market, and also how it is using tendering processes such as for ports, special trade or e-commerce zones, or even new cities to push its green agenda. But on the flip side, she also provides texture on the continuing challenges one general theme as our discussion is how the data collection and analysis is important to reach sustainability goals but recent chinese data security laws raise questions on the extent to which china and chinese companies will be able to take advantage of this global resource to learn and improve their sustainability performance also drawing on her experience with the factory that her family has owned and operated for decades in southern china she questions The focus of local Chinese governments on the issue and the extent to which multinationals are truly pushing sustainability goals through their supply chains. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. Juliana, welcome to China Corner Office.
0: Thanks for having me, Chris. It's great to be with you today
1: great well I'm so interested um, to dive in and start talking about your work at Schneider uh, you know a company that is focused on circularity, sustainability, you know helping many companies achieve their environmental goals you know things that are so front and center uh, nowadays. I guess to just start us off, can you just describe a little bit about Schneider's business particularly as it relates to sustainability?
0: Absolutely. So unfortunately we are in a podcast setting because the best way to actually describe Schneider is by playing a YouTube video, um, our company YouTube video. It is phenomenal. When I was first sent that clip um, by the executive recruitment team, that blew me away. Um, The first thing it says is we're going to tell you what we don't do and what we don't do is we don't make lifts or elevators depending which part of the world (laughs) that you come from. Um, So Bearing in mind that I cannot play that video with the audience and share that with you today. I think what I'd like to do is maybe just to describe our uh, business a little bit. So we are in the energy management and automation business. So the best way to describe it is that we drive digital transformation by integrating um, different things. We integrate processes, energy technologies, connected products, controls, software and services in order to integrate how companies or organizations manage their homes, buildings, data centers, infrastructure and industries, etc., How does Schneider think about sustainability? I think we're in the energy business, we're in the electricity business. So we do believe that energy and digital is a basic human right. And if you look at what our generation is facing today, we are facing a tectonic shift in the energy transition and an industrial revolution. So really, electrification is the most effective way for us to decarbonize our planet and to achieve some of these climate-positive goals that we set ourselves. So at Schneider Electric, our mission is to be the digital partner for sustainability and efficiency. And our company's purpose is to empower all to make the most of our energy and resources, bridging progress and sustainability
1: so, wow, that, that is really a set of ambitious and very important set of work. You know, I'm not sure if this analogy fits, but I was thinking of like what when you were talking, you know, it's something like the intel inside of sustainability or carbon neutrality. You know, yeah. You know, 20, 30 years ago, people didn't realize that actually, you know, computers had these things called chips and, you know, they could actually be branded as well. And so it seems that you are really just sort of standing behind many companies in their sustainability uh, efforts. You know, would love to hear a little bit more specifics on the projects you're working on that can illustrate those broader sets of goals and principles.
0: Sure. At, so it, at Schneider, we, call, we don't call it Intel Inside, of course, but we call it Life is On, right? So, you know, one of the most basic idea, and when we say energy and access for all, is that, you know, there's a, millions of people in this world today that still don't have access to electricity, at least on a regular basis, if not at all. So, you know, the first thing we of course do is to encourage the access to energy. Um, so we train up engineers in developing markets. Um, we we provide a lot of investment into the building of um, energy and electricity infrastructure in markets that need it. Um, but also globally, even in more developed parts of the world and more developed parts of where we operate our business, um, we set ourselves very, very ambitious sustainability goals to make sure that we play the best part we can um, in this decarbonization journey. and really embracing our mission and our purpose, right?
1: Okay, so on uh, this, I guess decarbonization, environmental sustainability side, you know you work with companies, projects, buildings perhaps, to achieve their greater environmental sustainability. Can you provide some examples uh, of those specific projects?
0: Yeah, for sure. So I think there are two sides of the coin. I think first is what we are trying to do ourselves to make ourselves more sustainable as a business. Because if you don't start by yourself, you really cannot, cannot help others, right? So, um, And then we also talk about, okay, how do we, as, as practitioners of sustainability, how do we then empower the ecosystem that we operate in to be more sustainable? So if we look at what we do ourselves first, at a very high level, um, we, we, we set our sustainability strategy every three years and report regularly, quarterly um, on our progress. Um, we have some very, very ambitious targets that we set up for ourselves, not just on decarbonization, but across all spectrums of sustainability, including diversity and inclusion, um, our impact to local communities, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Some of the goals I can share with you that we've set ourselves, Uh, for example, we said we will be um, net zero in our operations by 2030. Um, We will be carbon neutral in our value chain by 2040 and net zero in our end to end value chain by 2050. Um, That's very much in line with some of the science based targets that some of our other companies are setting as well. But what we notice as well by setting these long term targets, actually, they don't mean much unless we can get there so we have also set ourselves some very ambitious short-term targets one example would be you know we we hope to reduce um, the carbon emission of the top thousand suppliers of schneider electric by 50 percent by 2025 so that's a very active concrete project that we're working on globally across our supply chain um, trying to achieve that so we do a lot of this work ourselves of course um, making sure we have net zero sites, et cetera. But at the same time, we've also set up a sustainability business, which is where my job comes into play within Schneider Electric. Our mission is to help our customers accelerate on their decarbonization journey. Um, and we can I know we're going to talk a little bit more about how we think about decarbonization, et cetera. But you know, ultimately, um, we know that as, as as humanity, we need to go three times faster and cut global emissions three times deeper in order to even make a dent in what we have to do to tackle climate change. So, um, you know, really, our team's mission is to help corporates uh, get there, leveraging what we know, leveraging the technologies that are out there um, and leveraging a bit of an ecosystem effect, right? Bringing parties together to achieve that kind of results.
1: Great. Well, really great to hear about the Schneider Electric Goals and particularly, you know, your focus on the near term, like 2025. You know, so many companies focus on twenty forty, maybe twenty fifty, but you know that is actually so far in a, you know in advance. It's really unclear of how to get there. Also, thought your focus around suppliers is also really important because another weakness is that many people only think about their own work, but not actually how the environmental effects of their supply chain actually lead to you know sort of greater carbon or environmental issues.
0: Yeah. And it's countries and, and countries as well, right? Countries are also setting long-term goals. So it'll be interesting to see some of the short-term goals that countries are putting out there.
1: Yes, definitely uh, very much agree and certainly want to talk about uh, those issues, particularly in relation to China. You know, in its 2060 goals, I mean, there's a lot of conflicting information around mm. that. that. That is their 2060 goals on carbon neutrality. They have these goals, yet also widely reported is they're still building a lot of coal-fired uh, electrical plants, uh, which really seems to conflict with those goals. So we'll, you know, sort of get to that in a bit. Uh, before diving into that, though, I'd love to touch on something that you mentioned just right now. Was that you do work helping companies achieve sustainability goals, maybe net zero? You know, is there like a specific project that you can share with us to help illustrate that?
0: Um, there are plenty of examples out there um, that I can share with you. Um, maybe I will start with sharing with you what are some of the levers we can pull and what we're trying to achieve from a decarbonization perspective, because probably that sets a good framework for some of the discussions that we will have going forward and, and probably help visualise as well as, as as to how we can help our clients. So, you know, we, we're in the business of energy. So under the sustainability umbrella we focus more on the decarbonization piece of sustainability. Of course, they're all aspects within a company's sustainability strategy that requires action. Um, But when we talk about decarbonization and how we help our clients, we we figure that there are a few levers that we can pull when we want to get on a net zero pathway. The first one is really electrification. So if we think about the cars, mobility, the cars that we drive, right? The first thing we want to do is probably switch from a gas vehicle to an EV. So the same thing applies to any kind of corporate, whether it's industrial, building, etc. cetera. Um, the first thing is to look at, okay, what are really fossil fuel consumptions that we're using today that can be electrified and replaced by electricity? Then the second thing you need to do is to look at, or the second thing we can look at is, how do we reduce that energy usage? How can we b- be more efficient um, in our energy use and optimize through equipment, or process re-engineering or any other means to make sure we consume as little energy um, as possible. Then, the, based on the electricity that we use, hopefully at the minimum level, um, we would then have to think about how do we replace That energy source? How do we replace it with fossil fuel electricity with renewable electricity? And that could be direct renewable purchases, or it can be through an integrated model. And there's some complexities around there. But that's the third thing or the third lever that one can pull when it comes to decarbonization. And last but not least, we touched upon A little bit which is how do we engage the rest of our supply chain so back to the vehicle example that I used right so Chris tomorrow if you get yourself an EV hopefully you are driving an EV already (laughs) you probably so actually
1: um, I don't own a car believe it or not Uh, when I moved to the UK uh, a number of months ago I actually (laughs) sold my car in the US and it's the first time in 35 years that I actually don't own a car
0: that's even better get on the bike um, so in, in in imagine if you have your EV now it really it really doesn't help if you know the steel that is uh, the that your car is made from it, it still requires heavy fossil fuel and big furnaces to power to make the steel so um, so I would say these are the four key levers that one can pull when it comes to decarbonization so concrete examples of how we help our customers from from a from a reduced energy use perspective, right? We can help them look at an enterprise holistically and say, okay, where are the areas? First of all, how mature are you in energy efficiency? Are there opportunities uh, for savings? And then where are the areas can you optimize, whether it's through equipment upgrade, whether it's through process changes in your manufacturing plant, for example, or just by behavioral changes in terms of how your 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 colleagues use, um, you know, your, your, your buildings or your equipments. Um, and we can give recommendations there to help them truly optimize their energy usage um, and then another example of how we can help our clients is by by looking at how to replace their energy source right are there power purchase agreements that they can enter so that they can use renewable energy instead of fossil fuel en- energy um, are there carbon credits that they can purchase that will help them offset some of the purchases if they're in locations where renewables may not be immediately available. So there are a bunch of strategies that we can apply to help customers with that as well. And so across all the levers, there are a bunch of things we can do and we can help customers with.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, the first one, I think, was around the ideas of sort of understanding energy use. You know, I think about like, I don't know, large buildings or complexes, plants, you know, that in itself could be just a huge challenge. Can you say a bit more about actually how you go about helping those companies understand their energy usage a bit more?
0: Sure. So if we think about, let, let's put aside of thinking of a big, big building or a big Um, a neighborhood because that that is a bit complicated right but if let's just think about our homes so every quarter I get an energy bill from our local uh, energy provider which is CLP Um, I get a huge bill and I want to know how do I how do I pay less energy (laughs) but there's nothing I can do about it because there's no way for me to know what is consuming the energy is it my terribly old air conditioners which I have eight of them in my little village house? Or is it my mother who is constantly keeping the lights on in her bathroom and turning up the heater, you know, at 20 degrees Celsius? (laughs) There's no way of me knowing. And if you think about it at a micro level in a home, it's exactly the same concept when it comes to buildings or even neighborhoods. So, you know, an example would be for, for some of the largest property developers here in Hong Kong, including Swire Properties. What we do is we help them implement connected devices across the building infrastructure so that they can really know which equipment, which floor, which, uh, which, which tenant, um, which equipment is actually burning the most of, of, of the electricity consumption in the building. And the engineers, the facility managers can look at that data and really do something about it. Just like hopefully I can find out what is killing my CLP bill on a monthly basis. <laughs>
1: Yeah. you know, yeah, very helpful examples, both. I mean, we can all sort of relate to your personal example, but then also, you know, sort of thinking about how it might apply to something like a shopping mall, uh, or a building, you know, I mean, I think about my own sort of living arrangement. I mean, is my high bill a result of, you know, insulation issues, the windows are bad, AC units, like you mentioned, um, you know, for your clients, I'm curious, you know, what do you do with all this data? I mean, it seems like, you know, just even on the home example, there's sort of scores of different data points to potentially collect, you know, and that could probably number in the hundreds or thousands for some larger entity. So do you help them organize, analyze, benchmark areas of improvements? You know, how do you actually, you know, help the companies get, get a handle around this very diverse and hard to understand data?
0: Yes absolutely we we can do that um uh, not not an issue at all and in, in fact what we find is um the big the biggest challenge is actually not in the benchmarking or finding energy saving opportunities um the the biggest challenge is actually how do you get the data in the first place and, and, you know, when I previously shared, you know, we can we can put in these these devices to help you monitor your energy consumption at a very minute level, right? So imagine a small tag or a small hook that you can place in your kettle, in your toaster, in your air conditioning unit without any kind of big infrastructural changes, right? You don't have to triple glaze your window. And you know exactly who's consuming or what equipment is consuming the most energy or wh- what time of the day or you know, what is the outside temperature when that thing is being turned on? That's very powerful information. But the issue is how do you get that data? Right? I, d- I for sure don't have those tags in my home, and which is why I'm running blind when I get my CLP bill. So I think a lot of the time organizations struggle with um, is, 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 is understanding, okay, where does this data sit and how do we c- collect it? And this is one about technology. And I, I can guarantee you that the technology exists. It's out there. And they're actually dirt cheap these days. <laughs> Compared to all the other kinds of digital transformations that a corporate will go through, like a ERP uh, replacement, for example, so there exists and but the second thing is also people and processes right you know are, are there strong enough commitments from a group level to get the people to think about these opportunities? How can we think about our data differently? How can we operate differently so we can get the right data in um, and know what what 's going on in our organization i think that 's really the hardest part and the tricky part of the equation where Um, You know, often clients tell us is the biggest pain point collecting invoices, right? Just getting those CLP invoices. Believe it or not, it's the hardest thing. If you're a global company with hundreds and thousands of sites or buildings or floor areas, that's the hardest part.
1: Yeah, so I can see. Um, yeah, so the example of your mother keeps, you know, coming back into my head. Uh, you know, I mean, when you think about some of these larger, you know, infrastructure or building management companies, you know, they have scores of tenants. I mean, it's sort of almost like, you know, thinking about managing a supply chain. You know, how do you encourage your tenants or their suppliers that it's actually in their interest to care about the environment, both, you know, for their bottom line probably, but also. You know, for all of us, you know, sort of our, our, you know, sort of common, you know, humanity and, uh, you know, safety of the planet. Uh, So could you say a little bit more about how these large maybe building managers are working with tenants on these issues to help encourage them to be more sustainable?
0: Yeah, maybe I can use for sure. I think maybe I can use our own, um, you know, the zero carbon project that I mentioned in the very beginning as an example, right, where we're working with our top thousands uh, well highest emitter top 1,000 highest emitter suppliers uh, to reduce their carbon emission by 50%. So, you know, we started off, of course, um, imagine the whole program that we have to go through. The first step is to get commitment and buy-in from our suppliers first, right? So talking to 1,000 of them and say, okay, this is why we want to do this. This is how we think we can achieve this together. Um, This is what this program entails. Um, That's a huge effort on its own, just the communication and getting the buy-in. Uh, fortunately, you know, we're very proud to say almost every one of our suppliers have bought into the zero carbon project and and made a pledge. The second part of the challenge is then actually helping them even understand what is their baseline GHG emissions. And that's back to my point around data capture. But actually before that is the whole education piece. What we found is actually more than 70 percent of those suppliers have never even heard about GHG accounting or have an idea of how to go about it. So what we had to do very quickly was, was, you know, based on our expertise in GHG accounting and carbon um, put together education programs for these suppliers that are all over the world. Hours and hours and hours of training, recordings, webinars, <laughs> Q&A's to help them understand how they can baseline their own GHG emissions. Some of our suppliers are really, really large corporates. They might be already well ahead of the game, but most of them are, you know, small, medium enterprises in markets where this whole concept of climate change and decarbonization isn't quite mature yet. So there's a lot of education there. And then comes the data piece. So, you know, there are really, really small steps, very human steps, actually, I would say, that, 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 that is required to make a difference.
1: Yeah. I think that's a, you know, a very well-made point. I mean, if you look at the media, there's a lot of celebration of you know, technology to get us to net zero or even sort of importance of policy uh, interventions. But in many cases, it is actually a very human process you know, with businesses having to actually change uh, organizational systems to help move us along uh, that path. I'd like to shift gears a bit, actually, and turn our attention back to China a little bit as well. You know, earlier we talked about the importance of goals, and they have this peak carbon 2030 goal, you know, and then carbon neutrality 2060 goal, yet, you know, the media widely reports they're sort of speeding up their production of uh, coal-fired plants. You know, I'd love to hear just a little bit about your top-of-line comment on the sustainability work in China.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So this is a really tricky one, Chris. So I think before I go into answering the question, I probably should let the audience know a little bit why, why I even am in a position to answer anything about China. <laughs> um, Probably to set the stage. So, you know, I, I'm personally, I'm 50% Chinese by blood. Um, I'm a hundred percent Chinese in upbringing and culture. I was born in Hong Kong. Um, my family is in the manufacturing business in China since the seventies. Um, uh, we've spent over 20 years as a family living in mainland China. And I personally have worked, um, across mainland China for the last seven years professionally as well. So, you know, I've seen China in, in my little universe, <laughs> um, And that's how I can share some of the experience. And as well as, you know, in in, in the context of sustainability today, of course, you know, a lot is happening in China. And I think it's worth sharing with the audience as well. So back to your point around, you know, China's environmental goals for 2030. So 2060 and and 2030 and what's happening today. I think let's put things in a bit of a a market perspective first, right? Uh, China is the biggest emitter by far in the world. And if we want to have a chance, a fighting chance of solving climate change, um, we need China on board. That's the simple story. However, China still heavily relies um, on coal and it has an energy market that is fully uh, controlled by, by the government. And what we have seen in the last few months, actually, some of you may have heard about the, the China energy crisis. So, so what has happened there is, you know, there's a constantly increasing demand for um, energy needs in China, especially during the winter months. Um, we are seeing a shortage of coal in China for two reasons. One is, you know, the government limiting domestic coal production because they want to achieve the peak of 2030. Um, but they're also trying to boost um, coal imports at the same time. So. First question, net net, where are we with the coal (laughs) consumption in China? Um, And because of the shortage of coal, we're also seeing a a rise in coal prices um, to a point where power companies have decided that they're not going to produce any more power in China, which is why we're seeing some of the energy crisis um, and factories not being able to operate, etc. So there are things there that you can see really not conducive to China meeting its 2060 or 2030 goal targets, right? We all know that stability is a key, key I guess, policy driver for China. Um, and when you have these sporadic energy crises, that does not help with stability and it doesn't help with business. So they're going to have to continue getting power generators to fire up their coal plants um, to make sure there is steady supply of energy. But then on the on the other flip side, you know, you also observe some other market dynamics at play. First of all, you know, the relentless focus in renewables that we're seeing in China. Um, they're absolutely world leading when it comes to solar. Um, in 2020, they have generated 250,000 megawatts of solar energy. That's way, way, way past what the U.S. and the rest of the world combined (laughs) have been able to generate. Um, And they're very ambitious, right? So they're, for example, building a massive solar, I wouldn't even call it a plant, I don't even call it a megastructure in the Gobi Desert to continue to boost up its uh, solar capabilities. Wind, they're more than triple in terms of generation volume than any other country in the world. And they're very ambitious. They're aiming for 25% of non-fossil fuel energy source by 2025. So if you look at, you know, and and, and the amount of times that she himself has come out talking about the importance of fighting climate change and and transition to renewables, that says a lot as well. So, you know, I think there are two sides of the coin. Um, I wish I had the crystal ball (laughs) to know (laughs) what the future holds. um, But what I can do is just share some of these market dynamics that are at play that we observe today.
1: Great. Well, uh, thanks so much for that. I really appreciated you, you know, contextualizing things a bit and, you know, sharing your background, you know, particularly family's background in the manufacturing industry and sort of your time, (laughs) you know, living in China. And I'd love to dig into that a little bit more um, as well. But first, I'd really like to hear, you know, some of your thoughts about actually the China uh, situation, you know. There's a variety of sort of restrictions uh, and laws that have come into, you know, the news recently around data, uh, sharing of data, data privacy, you know, having data, you know, that sort of generated in China, stay in China. You know, this has been a lot around tech companies going public, but then also, you know, Tesla and Apple, you know, having to have their, you know, local data uh, in local data centers. What you described were actually very data heavy solutions to helping companies become more environmentally sustainable. You know and how do those China data restrictions then affect the work that you're doing?
0: Mm. Actually, the same, the same restrictions and concerns exist, you know whether they're to do with uh, information data, like technology platforms, um, like a Google versus your Baidu or financial platforms the same thing happens when it comes to sustainability platforms and the data around that unfortunately so we talked about the importance of data and decarbonization right and the idea is that if you are a large uh, multinational uh, with footprint all over the world what you ideally want to do is to want to be able to use technologies or platforms to create a single source of truth of your emissions or even your ESG data if going beyond carbon emissions, right? And that means you need to integrate data from your different sites or different facilities up into the country level, up into the global level. That's the only way you know that you can accurately report out on your ESG uh, KPIs or your ESG commitments. However, given, the, um, given the, 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 the data privacy or the data legislations that you mentioned that are happening in China, um, one of the issues is it's quite ambiguous, right, what is classified um, as restricted data is really hard for, for anyone corporate to be able to answer for themselves. So, you know, is, is your energy data restricted? That's a question depending on the state, depending on the business that you're in. Um, so, you know, there are definitely, co- I would say, constraints or considerations for large corporates that are operating inside and outside of China and and challenges around how they can have this integrated view. Um, and what we're seeing now is that, you know, just like a lot of things like in payments, for example, um, global solutions don't necessarily work in China. So they do need to somehow be captured, used locally, um, and maybe, maybe integrated in another way instead of using a single platform.
1: Okay. Uh, yeah, interesting. You know, that does... Um unfortunately seem like a constraint, but with such a big market, you know, even with those sort of bounded conditions like it is, hopefully the MNCs, you know, there like yourself can use the China data effectively.
0: Yeah, and in in this case, um exactly, even though, you know, maybe the integration of data globally isn't as straightforward Um, as long as there's action on the ground right as i said you know it's really important for china and businesses in china to to be part of this decarbonization journey that the entire world needs to be on so if if the data is visible um, and captured in china as long as there are key actions there to decarbonize uh, factories buildings then i think we're in a good place
1: okay um yeah i'm also Interested in what some of the areas are that you're more optimistic, you know uh, There's a variety of things, you know, like I mentioned, you know, uh, China's leading world leading by many times in solar and wind You know you read about uh, sort of some of their pioneering carbon markets, you know Central government funding and promotion of various green tech, you know Can you say a little bit about areas that you might be more optimistic about and that are really actually in some ways thriving in China?
0: So I like to look back in the past sometimes to try to think about what the future can hold, Chris. So, uh, y- your question actually prompted me uh, two little historical experiences um, that I've 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 experienced regarding China. The first one I remember when we first moved to China twenty plus years ago. You know, there is still no acknowledgement of how bad plastic bags are for the world. Um, but suddenly, overnight, you know, China was able to implement legislation that says we blan- ban pl- plastic bags. The next day we go to a supermarket, there are no more plastic bags. And that took years for the rest of the world to catch up to the point where we are now finally not using plastic bags in most um, countries. So the other thing as well is, is in terms of mobile payments and, and, and just mobile itself, Right. Um, I remember we were so proud in Hong Kong to have the octopus system and we can just beep through, uh, do through um, all kinds of transports, but we are stuck with that <laughs> and the rest of the world has kind of stuck with that when nowadays in China, you don't need a wallet, you can just do everything on your, on your WeChat to pay on your, on your apps on your WeChat mini programs um, and, and we're so far behind <laughs> everywhere else. So, you know, those two examples make me think that when it comes to the topic of sustainability, especially climate change, you know, when when China sets off to do something, they can get it done. They don't have some of the infrastructure or historical baggages that other countries have. Um, And as I said before, you know, she has she himself has actively addressed climate change and has been very vocal about the targets in the past. So that actually sheds a really positive light on the pathway that China's going. There are also other green shoots um, to answer your questions. You know, you mentioned the green electricity trading platform that has kind of actually, actually something that has been in in in, in research for, for over uh, a dozen years, but has recently come back up and it's, it's trading and it's working. Um, we're also seeing, you know, China becoming the largest manufacturer of electric cars and buses, and you know them switching into EVs overnight. You know, a place like Shenzhen with the millions of buses is just incredible. Um, so there are a lot of things like this, and also, for example, you know, the tenders that we're seeing in China these days with big infrastructure uh, RFPs that are coming out. You know, it's all about green ports, green technology parks, green cities, green zones. And, you know, they are asking people to to bid for these tenders to develop net zero living spaces. So for me, these are all kind of signals that China is heading the right direction when it comes to fighting climate change. Of course, there's a question of speed. There is a question of real impact. Right. You know, you know, are are, are those... Um, respondents of those RFPs sophisticated enough to really know what a net zero port looks like. I mean, that's that's a question we have to ask, um, and something that we need to keep an eye out on. But directionally, I think we're in a good place.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, amazing to me about all the sort of exciting work and innovation going on. You know, new government projects, priorities. You know, you look at the five year plans. Uh, you know, really ambitious. But what's your sense about? things at the local level and also things like enforcement you know clearly that's a really important lever as well i mean we can create new and that in some ways is a little bit easier than actually making sure that the existing infrastructure is more environmentally responsible itself so what's your sense about how that sort of enforcement and you know transitioning existing infrastructure is working out
0: well that's a really tough question to answer chris (laughs) that's a challenge um And unfortunately, there is not enough, at least I don't have enough data to back up to say, you know, locally on the ground. Is there enough incentive or carrot and stick that's happening to encourage businesses to go in the right direction? I can only share with you something that's, you know, in my personal experience. So as I mentioned, you know, my family is in the manufacturing business, small, very, very, very small business, one site, one plant in in Dongguan. And um, But we've been around for, for many years and hopefully a few more years to come. Um, my sister, who is the person um, responsible for the business nowadays, um, is doing a phenomenal job. And, and her and I actually had a conversation about this. I did say to her, you know, with all your big customers in Australia, in the UK, and these are big, big names um, that you will see in, in malls that are buying your products. You know, they're all making these net zero sustainability commitments are you feeling an impact um, as a small supplier of of one of these big multinational retailers? And she said to me, no. (laughs) She said, uh, so I thought that was a really interesting answer. And so I dug further and I'm like, well, okay, you're supplying containers and containers worth of goods over there. So surely there is some implication. She said, actually, they're still in a stage of just... Communicating, so she has to, uh, uh, you know, attend a lot of supplier conferences. Um, they they they're told about their customer sustainability ambitions, but there are no concrete steps to really address how the suppliers, especially small suppliers like this, can help contribute to the bigger picture. And secondly, from a government perspective, she also said, yes, you know, um, on surface, the government will will come up with legislations. For example, you know, we are in, in, in a manufacturing business where we have to do a lot of dyeing of fabrics. So the government would say, hey, you know, we're going to restrict the number of the, the, the water um, that, that pollutes our rivers. And so you need to clean all the water that comes out of your factory. But for a small factory like ours and our suppliers, right, and our down, our, our value chain, they just don't have the, the 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 capital to invest in the technology to clean the water. You know, given the size of the business versus the size of the investment needed to put in such technologies. So, you know, what do companies do? They just don't do anything, and the government doesn't do much about it. They might come around, do some checks, shut you down, but another factory pops up somewhere else. Unfortunately, that's reality. <laughs>
1: Wow uh, okay uh, that's that's uh, a little disappointing to hear uh, and unfortunately we're coming close to the end I hate to close our discussion on on, on such a point but I, I do think it actually brings us back to what we were talking about at the beginning of our discussion you know that this is really about an ecosystem you know you talked about the work you're doing at Schneider with your supply chain and goals you know we as consumers too are an important element in this and we have to you know hold companies to account and and you know push them to be more sustainable. Governments are an important element of this, as we've discussed. Uh, you know, there's really no magic bullet, so to speak. You know, it's a, really up to all of us, you know, and all different stakeholders to really keep the pressure on if we're actually going to meet these goals. And in many ways, I you know don't mean to you know suffer from hyperbole, but really, you know, save our planet. I mean, that's actually what the stakes are uh, in this yeah. situation.
0: And I think that this is the time where the big guys. Um, can do a lot more helping the small guys. So the example I was giving you, um, personal family example, where we don't see a lot of that happening locally, but these are small factories, right? They probably don't make a dent in the real environmental impact that we're seeing. So, you know, as long as the big sites, the big manufacturers, the big companies are committed, those that have the capital to invest in the technologies do so, then I think, you know, there is a huge fighting chance for us to get there, even for the small guys.
1: Okay, thanks. Well, that gives me a little bit uh, more hope. Um, And so, you know, really just want to thank you so much, uh, Juliana, for taking the time, you know, discussing your important work at Schneider, and really, you know, how we need a systems perspective, you know, globally, but then also particularly, you know, in relation to China and its goals, and how those spill down to the local level uh, to help meet our climate goals. So thank you so much for joining us on China Corner Office.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Chris. This was really fun. Thank you.